You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The following episode, titled The Phantom Sniper, was originally released on March 3rd of 2010. It's the true story of a serial shooter who terrorized the Los Angeles area for nearly a year in the early 1950s. And what originally drew me to the story was the minor mistake that the shooter made that led to his capture. In fact, it was so minor that it may have gone unnoticed by anyone except trained investigators. So let's see if you can catch the shooter's mistake. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Swimman. Today's story is titled The Phantom Sniper. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. For today's question of the day, I thought I'd talk about American football. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I do not like football. I think I'm one of two men in America, that's it, that uh, don't like football. In fact, I, I never watch the Super Bowl. I find it one of the most boring times ever. Sometimes I'll see the commercials, but that's about it, maybe halftime. But I really cannot deal with the game itself. And people have asked me for years, why? And, I, you know, of course, I grew up in an area where I didn't get TV that showed football, and my high school didn't have football, so that might be part of it. But what really bothers me about the game is that nothing ever seems to happen. And I know no one agrees with me, so don't start writing me nasty emails about this. But back in 1984, I got snowed in at the University of Buffalo in the dorm that I was going, you know, I was going to school there. And we had one TV for the entire dorm, and it was Super Bowl Sunday, and guess what I had to watch? It was the Super Bowl, and I don't think time could have gone any slower. It just seemed to me that nothing was happening. A lot of people standing around and very, very little action. Now, just recently, and you may have read this, there was a study done to see how many minutes of an NFL football game was really spent playing football. How much was spent playing football, and how much of the rest was just filler you know replays and you know people standing around huddling whatever so my question for you today is how many minutes in the average nfl football game is spent actually playing football is it a 11 minutes b 14 minutes c 18 minutes or d 23 minutes again how many minutes of the average nfl football game is spent playing football not the other things. Is it A, 11 minutes, B, 14 minutes, C, 18 minutes, or D, 23 minutes? 
Well, I'll leave you in suspense and I'll let you know the answer to the question at the end of this podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for today's story on the Phantom Sniper. Now, you probably recall the terrorizing fear that gripped the United States back in 2002. That's eight years ago, as the Beltway Sniper randomly shot at people for about a three-week period. And if you don't recall, this is in the Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. And in the end, 10 people were killed and three critically injured. And there was a massive manhunt for these people. In the end, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo uh, uh, were arrested for the crimes. Muhammad just recently, uh, you may have seen this on the news, uh, on November 10, 2009, was executed for his crimes. Now, most of us, including myself, are too young to remember a similar series of crimes that terrorized the people in the southeastern section of Los Angeles County for nearly a year back in the 1950s. And that's what today's story is about. It's a story of the Phantom Sniper, as the press came to dub the shootings. And it started on August 27, 1951, when a 21-year-old woman named Lois Kreitzer was standing in an outdoor phone booth. You don't see many of those today. Uh, uh, Anyway, she's standing in the phone booth around noon, and while she was on the phone with her doctor, a bullet pierced through the glass of the booth and lodged in her lung and nearly killed her. She later testified that it felt like a big spring had hit her in her back. The second in the series of shootings occurred the very next night when a bullet crashed into the living room of Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd Walter. The bullet just smashed through the window, you know, just barely missed uh, Mrs. Walter and embedded itself in the wall. Luckily, no one was hurt in the shooting. But the next night, on Wednesday, August 29th, a 25-year-old divorcee named Nina Marie Bice was sitting on a stool at Scrivener's Chili Dogs and Hamburgers, which was a roadside stand with her fiancé and a friend. Ms. Bice was holding a cup of coffee with both hands, and just as she lifted it to her lips, there was a loud pop. She fell over onto the counter, and blood started running out of her ear. Her fiancé, William Hanner, quickly realized she'd been shot and ran behind the stand, but unfortunately the gunman was gone. Sadly, Ms. Bice uh, was killed instantly, leaving her three children without a mother. The police were convinced that they had a serial shooter on their hands. After all, this was three shootings in three days, and they found 22 caliber shells at all three crime scenes. The first suspect that they picked up was Nina's former husband, Leon Bice, because he owned a 22 caliber rifle. But tests confirmed that the rifle had not been fired in quite some time. The police were swamped with telephone tips. People were calling in left and right, but none of them led to a suspect. On September 1st, they did receive word that a 19-year-old man had offered to leave his 22 caliber gun as security uh, for a payment on a car repair bill. But when they picked him up, they could not find the gun, so they had no choice but to let him go. The police were mystified. I love that term, mystified. Anyway, with few clues and no viable leads, they did not have a suspect, and fear, as you can imagine, set in around the community. But then things seemed to quiet down for a bit. After three shootings on three consecutive days at the end of August, there was not a single shooting in September, 
and not even halfway into October. But then everything changed on October 17, 1951, with what I think was the cruelest shooting of them all. That's when a 10-year-old girl named Patricia Ellen Bryant was shot while waiting for the school bus outside her house. She did survive, but the bullet shattered the bone in her right forearm and grazed her abdomen. Just one month later, the phantom sniper struck again. This time he got 40-year-old Irma Alice McGradle while she was working in her garden. And there's no shock here. She was shot with a 22 caliber bullet, and it hit her in her thigh. This time, there were witnesses. Two small boys chased after the gunman, but he escaped by going into an orange orchard. Now, they were not of much help in cracking this case open because the only thing they could describe this person as was that he was a dark man. So what do we have so far? We have random shootings with a 22 caliber gun, and he was a dark man. Clearly not a whole heck of a lot for the police to go on. The next shooting occurred just after Christmas on December 27, 1951. That's when a 42-year-old housewife named Audrey Murdoch was standing in her kitchen just ironing her clothes. Then she, she heard this explosion, and she thought that the iron had exploded, and then she collapsed down to the floor. The bullet had become lodged in her liver, and she was never able to have it removed. Now, this time, a 15-year-old girl named Faye Salito said that she saw an old two-door sedan stop briefly in front of the Murdoch home. She heard the shot fired, and then the sedan sped away. But this still was not enough to find the phantom sniper. And to make matters worse, police examination of the mangled bullets from the previous five shootings concluded that they were all fired from different guns. Of course, the bullets were mangled, so they couldn't be sure. And then x-rays of the bullet that remained in Audrey Murdoch's liver suggested that it was a 38 caliber bullet, not a 22. So they were actually getting farther away, it seemed, from solving the case and getting closer. You know, was this all being done by just one sniper with multiple guns, or was it done by a bunch of different copycat snipers? The police were unsure. The next shooting occurred oh, about four months later on April 16, 1952. A woman named Joan Frances Hiles was sitting in her living room watching TV with her neighbor, Evan Charles Thomas. Now, when the show ended, Mr. Thomas said goodnight, and he went home to get ready for his job, uh, which was a nighttime railroad switchman. About 10 minutes after he left, a shot was fired through the drawn curtains of a window near where Mrs. Hiles was seated. Now, this is really amazing. She luckily, you know, luckily she just had leaned over out of the chair to change the channel, and the bullet whizzed by her and embedded itself in the couch. Mr. Thomas, who had just left, heard the shot and called her to make sure that everything was okay. The police arrived fairly quickly on the scene, and initially they thought this was a random shooting. This was a bad neighborhood, and they thought maybe you know, some kids had fired at a stray dog or a cat, and the bullet just accidentally went into Mrs. Hiles' window. But then investigators noticed there was a smoldering cigarette butt on the front lawn that lined up perfectly with the bullet's path. It was very clear that this was a deliberate shooting. Now, of course, the police interviewed Mr. Thomas since he had just left Mrs. Hiles' residence to see if he noticed anything or anyone while he was walking home. But he said he couldn't, and uh, they, you know, he just left for work. The next day, investigators asked Mr. Thomas if he would be nice enough to come down to the police station for a few additional questions, and he agreed. He had no problem with that, and he was arrested 
you know, just shortly after he got there as the phantom sniper. The police finally had their man. They had proof that Evan Charles Thomas was the phantom sniper. Now, did you catch his blunder that gave him away in my explanation? I kind of glossed over it, and you may have missed it. And I'll give you a hint. It wasn't the lit cigarette butt. Now, it took a really well-trained group of detectives to figure this one out. The shooter attempted to kill Mrs. Heil in the spot she'd been sitting in. She was sitting on that couch. But the curtains were closed. Only a person that was familiar with the layout of the living room and knew exactly where she was sitting at that exact time would know where to aim the gun to kill her. And the only person that fit that bill was Evan Charles Thomas. Of course, he was arrested, and immediately he admitted to six of the shootings. Then that same day, police took him back to the locations of several of the shootings, and he was able to provide details that only the shooter would know. They had their man. So the question is, why did he do it? And it turns out his marriage was in shambles, and he felt a perverse attraction to these women. For example, he never ever intended to kill Nina Bice when she was sitting outside that hamburger stand. He said, and I quote this, I thought she looked real nice. I thought I'd like to have a date with her. End of the quote. It seems that he intended to actually shoot the coffee cup out of her hand just to impress her. Uh, but unfortunately, he missed and sadly killed her. Now, Evan Charles Thomas was found guilty of the murder of Ms. Bice. There's no surprise there. Uh, the the uh, jury consisted of 10 women and two men, and they all recommended the death sentence. After his appeal was denied, Thomas was sent to his death in the gas chamber at San Quentin on Friday, January 29, 1954. His reign of terror over the women of Los Angeles County was definitely now over. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. For white, white washes without red hands, I've gone back to Does. Yes, for white, white washes without red hands, the swing is back to Does. Does does everything in your wash and does right by your hands. I didn't think about my hands when I started experimenting with some of those no-rinse powders, those chemical products. But my hands couldn't take it. So now I'm back to Does. Does gives me white, white washes without red hands. Is a pair of red hands the price you're paying for doing your wash? Then use Does for your next wash. Inspect your clothes carefully and answer this. Have you ever seen such dazzling whiteness, such thorough cleanliness, such brilliant colors? Have you ever seen all this with such wonderful treatment for your hands? Does can promise this because of the way Does is made. Does and only does of all leading wash day products contain such great quantities of real soap, extra rich soap, combined with two modern detergents. Only does contains these quantities of rich, real soap balanced with two modern detergents. That's why does gets your clothes so wonderfully clean and white while it gives extra safety for colors and almost toilet soap mildness to hands. That's truly why does does everything and does right by your hands. Get a box of Does today. You'll say it, too. For white, white washes without red hands, I've gone back to Does. That commercial for Does is from the August 10th, 1950 radio broadcast of the soap opera, The Guiding Light. Now, in the commercial, they talk about no-rinse chemical products as being the evil product. 
they're referring to Tide laundry detergent. Tide was the first laundry detergent introduced to mass market in the United States in 1949. This commercial is from 1950. Now, Does, on the other hand, and all the other laundry products of the day were made of real soap. And the introduction of Tide caused a sharp decrease in the sale of all these laundry soaps. Now, you need to understand that back then, almost all laundry uh, you know, was pulled out of the washing machine soaking wet. You know, you'd have the laundry in the washing machine, in the basin, and it didn't spin around to get the water out. You would take it out, put it through a wringer to squeeze all the water out, and then you would take it outside and hang it on the line to dry. Now, Tide was very aggressive on women's hands, on housewives' hands. Therefore, after they'd run everything, everything through the wringer, their hands would be bright red. And Does decided to use that as a marketing slogan because it was real soap, it was gentler on your hands, and you would not have red hands after doing your laundry. Now, one weird marketing promotion that they had in the late 1960s and early 1970s is that they would put a dish, a bowl, or a saucer into each box of Does. And this encouraged housewives to buy box after box after box, basically brand loyalty, so they can get a whole set of dishes for their kitchen. I'm sure they were junk, but, you know, it got people buying the product. Now, the oddest thing about this whole ad campaign is that Does was competing with Tide. And that's what this commercial is all about. Buy Does and don't buy Tide. But they were both made by the same exact company. They were made by Procter & Gamble. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for like to call news of the weird past. And our first tidbit goes back to June 2nd, 1927, where it's reported that at the meeting of the Astrological Observatory of the Smithsonian Institute, obviously a prestigious uh, institution, a Dr. Abbott reported, based on his observations, that Venus probably is very luxurious, has a steaming tropical environment with lots and lots of jungles and life on it. And he says, in quotes, it is reasonable to assume, therefore, that Venus is suitable for life. And that's the end of the quote. Of course, we know today that uh, Venus has clouds of sulfuric acid. Its atmosphere is loaded with carbon dioxide. It's the runaway greenhouse effect and can reach in excess of 460 degrees Celsius. That's 860 degrees Fahrenheit. And we also know today that it has a dusty, dry desertscape, and its atmospheric pressure is 92 times that of the pressure here on the surface of the Earth. So he's just a little bit off. 
Our next little tidbit goes back to April 16, 1947. It's reported that the FBI has too many diapers in storage. They don't know what to do with them. They have no place to store anymore. The U.S. attorney involved, Frank Hennessy, took the problem to the federal judge named Michael Roach. And the judge said June 7th of 1947 as the deadline for owners to establish their rights to these diapers. If you want them back, you had to do it by that date. In addition, the FBI also reported they had a wide variety of cosmetics and women's garments that uh, they needed to get rid of. It seems that most of these came through the seizure of uh, items that had been stolen from interstate commerce. And their last little tidbit goes back to March 28, 1961, where it's reported that J. Paul Getty, who founded Getty Oil, was one of the richest people on earth at that time, uh, he installed a pay telephone in his Sutton Place mansion, which is south of London. His reason for doing this, doing this was that everybody that came to visit the mansion, whether on business or just for a visit or a salesman, whatever it may be, they used the phones because they knew long distance was free, and he was tired of paying the bill. So he placed dial locks. In those days, they had dial phones. Placed a dial lock on every phone in the mansion, and anyone who, anyone who wanted to dial long distance had to use that pay telephone. Now, I just looked this up, and uh, J. Paul Getty, who, as I said, founded Getty Oil, was the 67th richest man ever to have lived on this planet. He, and he was one of the first ever to have a billion dollars. In fact, when he died, he had over $2 billion uh, in 1975. That's when he died. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I asked about NFL football here in the United States. And you also found out that I don't find it very interesting, which is besides the point. Anyway, how many minutes of the typical game on TV is spent playing the game? Well, I gave you four choices. I said A, 11 minutes, B, 14 minutes, C, 18 minutes, and D was 23 minutes. And the answer they found out was 11 minutes, which basically confirmed what I thought years ago, and that is I don't see much happening. So 11 minutes of play, the 17 minutes of the typical broadcast for replays, 67 minutes are spent just huddling, standing around, and I don't know what else because I don't follow the sport. And this one really surprised me. On a typical broadcast on TV, only three seconds of cheerleaders show up on the air. That was kind of surprising to me. So just kind of a little trivia thing. I was kind of surprised to read that uh, when the Super Bowl was on the air a few weeks ago. I hope you enjoyed today's story on the Phantom Sniper as well as our question of the day about NFL football and how much time they actually play. Listening to our retro sponsor, uh, Does Laundry Soap, and the news of the weird past tidbits, the first one being the fantastic world of Venus, the second one was the FBI diaper problem, and the third was J. Paul Getty's installation of a payphone in his mansion. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator, and the second book is Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. Now, if for some crazy reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. And as always, uh, I'd appreciate if you could log into iTunes. A lot of people have done this and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. I really appreciate that people have done that. And thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.